As we continue our journey through the Gospel of John, as we hear Jesus not only teach but have conversations, especially here in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, it dawned on me that much of what we're going to hear in this very thorough investigation of the life of Christ was heard at the beginning as if to say what came at the beginning is the bedrock for everything that would follow, including today's teaching. So Jesus is going to urge his followers, his disciples, to lift up their eyes and see the great harvest that's around them. To lift up their eyes means they need to see clearly that we need the Lord to shine his light into all of our lives. And when he shines that light, Darkness has no choice but to flee. In fact, this is how the whole gospel began. If you want to turn with me, it's just a couple pages to the left. The gospel of John chapter 1 verse 1 makes this declaration of the bigness of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we are discouraged in our faith because our Jesus is way too small. And then we come to passages like this. John chapter 1 verse 1 says... In the beginning was the Word. And who's the Word, friends? Jesus. Don't be shy to say it. It's always the right answer. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Listen. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness, hallelujah, has not overcome it. Every single time Jesus Christ is revealed, encountered, proclaimed, or experienced, the light shines into the darkness and exposes, reveals, corrects, and heals the ways that we cannot see clearly. As I was studying this passage, uh, I couldn't shake the idea of our own personal physical vision. Now, some of us, we have perfect 2020 vision. Some of us, we wear uh, glasses, contact lenses, whatever it may be. One of the surgeries that you've probably heard of is laser surgery or LASIK surgery, which is a very, very interesting concept. And of course, I'm not necessarily promoting it, I'm not advocating for it. I don't even claim to know everything about it. But what is interesting is that it is the idea that if you shoot a laser, and by the way, I'm already nervous at the idea, if you shoot a laser into your eye, into the place where you see everything, the the, the physical, biological part of you that makes sense of all the light reflecting off of images, all the shades and the shadows, You shoot a laser into your eye, it actually helps your eye see light better. And isn't that astounding? Who would have thought that a concentrated focus of light that would initially hurt would be the path towards healing? That through this laser surgery that seems to inflict damage is actually an agent to repair damage. That even if it goes well, not only does this laser give us better sight, but sometimes 
it even leads us to no longer need our lenses, no longer need anything to help us see. In this passage, that is what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus Christ reveal God's heart, reveal his and our mission so clearly that yes, perhaps it will initially hurt. Perhaps initially it will seem to inflict the way that we see our world. The the way that the world tells you, you have purpose, you have value. The way the world says, all right, this is what life's all about. Get as much stuff as you can. Try to avoid death as long as you can. And that's it. That's pretty much why we're here. No, when we come to this passage, Jesus, as he helps us to see, he also realigns and reminds his followers of our mission. When he says, lift up your eyes, let it not just be an encouragement, an exhortation to those disciples then, but an encouragement, an exhortation to us today, because how many of us know that in this world where there is lots of darkness, that our gaze can be focused and fixated, not up, not around, but down and in, overwhelmed by our problems, completely focused on ourselves. Jesus lifts our head, lifts our gaze to see what he's about and to see what he's doing around us. It's a really important message. It's a really, really valuable message. And yes, will we be challenged today? Absolutely. Someone once said that the gospel comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Sure enough, as we walk through the gospel of John, I believe that's going to happen. Let's look at the passage, shall we? This passage is going to be broken up into three parts. The first part, if you're taking notes, is number one, the disciples. Their eyes were focused on appearances. Number two, eyes focused on appetites. And then number three, eyes opened to the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 says this, Just then his disciples, Jesus' disciples, meaning his followers, came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You see, the disciples' eyes were focused on appearances. They went out to go get lunch at Sychar. They went to go get food for Jesus. And while they were away, Jesus is having a conversation with a woman with a very, very seedy past, a very bad reputation, five broken marriages, five broken families. This woman has been judged and condescended to by those in her family, those in her neighborhood. And here it is at this passage, Jesus has been engaging with her in a conversation about how her thirst goes so much deeper than anything she can find in Jacob's well. So much so that now this woman is so filled with joy, she is now running to the town, the same town where probably five of her ex-husbands live, 
The same town that those people that she was trying to avoid at the well would judge her and condescend to her, but she doesn't care. She's going out to share the good news of the fact that she believes Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the Savior of the world. All of this is happening, and the disciples walk up and say, hey, uh, why is Jesus talking to a woman? Now, in our day and age, this wouldn't be a big deal, right? In that day and age, especially in the Jewish culture at the time, it was a huge taboo not only to associate with a Samaritan, who the Jews viewed to be heretics and half-breeds, but to talk to a woman. One of the rabbinical teachings at the time said this, a man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what? Quote, what men might say. Very interesting. The Mishnah takes it to the next level. The Mishnah says, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and will at last inherit Gehenna. What does inherit Gehenna mean? It might sound like a skin infection or it might sound like you're inheriting some piece of property down in South Jersey. No, inherit Gehenna means hell. This is what the disciples, this was the air they breathed. This was their culture. They saw Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman and all of a sudden, man, they probably have questions. They probably have doubts. Why is he talking with a woman? I thought he was holy. I thought he was the prophet. I thought he could be the Messiah. All of a sudden, grumbling. Here's what's amazing about our Jesus. You ready? Jesus doesn't care. What does Jesus care about? Doing the work and the will of his father who sent him to save people like this Samaritan woman. Yes, it's true that God has created us man and women in his image. We have complementing roles in the home and in the church. That's all true. But what we tend to do, what humanity tends to do, what religious people tend to do is to say, all right, well, here's God's truth. We don't really trust people to handle God's truth. We're going to add God's truth so much so that now the people can't tell where God's truth ends and people's tradition and truth begins, and then all gets mixed together. This is the air they breathe. Friends, are we sometimes too focused on appearances? Are there people in our lives that we look at and we're like, oh man, I'm pretty sure that person's never coming to faith. Let Jesus surprise you. Let him surprise you because he is working. He is wooing. He is actively pursuing, I believe, those people. We just have to open our eyes to see it. I mean, what if? What if you saw one of the pastors of the church talking with someone that perhaps doesn't look like a regular church attender? Perhaps in a place that there is no one in that place praying to the Lord. What would you naturally think? Oh man, we would be tempted to gossip. We would be tempted to doubt the integrity of the one talking to him. Now, of course, you want to use wisdom. You want to be smart. All of those things. You want to flee even the presence of evil. But friends, Jesus doesn't care about our man-made rules. He cares about this woman. He cares about this town. And what we see is what he cares about is what comes about. So they had an eye for appearance, but they also had eyes on appetite. And I know we can relate to this. Let's all look at the passage, shall we? Verse 31 says this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? You should be giggling because it's almost tongue-in-cheek humor. Let's pause right there. So they went to Sychar to get food for Jesus. He was weary. He was tired. He was hungry. That's why he was at the well. At least it's what it seemed like the reason he was at the well. They come back with food. Jesus tries to teach a spiritual principle that his food is to do the will of his father. He has food that they don't know anything about. So when they hear that Jesus has food that they don't know anything about, what do they think? Did someone order out? Did someone order delivery for Jesus? Andrew, have you been stuffing Pop-Tarts and then feeding them to Christ? Someone else has gotten him food. What's going on here? Can we see ourselves in these disciples? I don't know if you uh, have heard me talk about uh, a summer that Melissa and I spent in Taiwan. Taiwan is a small Asian country right off the coast of China. And while we were there, we had an amazing experience. It's the hottest place I've ever been in my whole life. Love the people, love the food, love the whole experience. And while we were in southern Taiwan... What we were doing, because of the language barriers, we had to act out skits. We acted out Bible stories and parables. And it wasn't this story here in John 4 about the Samaritan woman. It was the parable of the Good Samaritan. How many of us have heard this parable before? It's a powerful story. Someone asked Jesus, who is your neighbor? And what Jesus does is he flips the script, tells the story, and says, imagine this. Someone gets robbed, beaten up, brutally injured, and is left to die on the side of a road. A Levite walks by. Someone you'd expect to help this person does nothing. Then a priest walks by and will not be bothered. And then a Samaritan. Samaritans were people that the Jews avoided. They detested. They would avoid them at all costs. A Samaritan comes and cares for the wounds of this man dying in a ditch, takes him to an inn, gives his own personal money, not only for his momentary uh, healing, but also so that he could get back on his feet. It's an amazing story. This was one of the parables we were acting out in Taiwan. We were literally acting this out. And sure enough, when we were out doing open-air evangelists, when the story was done, and when the time of evangelism was done, all of a sudden, we needed food. We were hungry, right? So we were walking around looking for food, and then sure enough, I'm not making this up. We just acted out the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then up walks this guy, drunk, blood pouring out from his eye, open wound. Somebody must have hit him four times in his face, maybe with something harder than his fist. He's drunk, he's bloody, he's walking around like this. What do we do? Oh, man, we're not dealing with that. All right, where are we going for lunch? (laughs) Where's food again? This is us. And then it dawned on all of us. How could we, during a religious church service, during a quote-unquote service project, mission strip, evangelism, how could we act this out? But then when it shows up in our reality with all of its messiness and all of its ugliness, I mean, this guy was a disaster. It was scary. We didn't know if whoever beat him up was going to come after us. It required us to not just pretend to believe this. It required us to sacrifice and live it out. This is what Jesus is about. And oftentimes in church cultures and in, in, uh, in 
churchianity, if I can use that phrase, we forget. This isn't just for the increase of your religious informational knowledge. No, this is to be put into practice where we live. So in verse 34, the story continues. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus also said when he was tempted by none other than Lucifer, that great lying, accusing serpent, Satan, he said this. Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He said, my man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see this, friends? What he's trying to say is that while our hunger, literally our stomachs, is one of the most primal and powerful urges and needs in our lives, for Jesus, there was something even greater. There was an even greater hunger. This is astounding for some of us, right? Because not only if we don't eat, but if we don't snack throughout the day, we not only get hungry, we get hangry. You know what I'm talking about? You get angry. Jesus has a deeper hunger than just lunch. The mission will not take a backseat to breakfast, Jesus says. No, the mission is the food. We understand this? We can feed upon good Bible teaching. We can go to great Christian concerts. We can sign up for all the instructional, practical, biblical conferences. And unless we're taking all this good food and putting it into practice, exercising these spiritual muscles, if I can use that imagery, then we won't know the true joy of the food. The food is not only meant to be partaken of, but it's meant to give you strength and energy so you could share it with others. Someone once said this, and I think he's right. All feeding and no working gives Christians spiritual indigestion. It's true. And there's no Pepto-Bismol for this. There's no Maalox. What we're called to do is to hear the word, receive it, believe it, rejoice in it, let it saturate our hearts and our minds. But don't just say, all right, this is my food. You go find your own. No, we're called to share it. That was the food that Jesus lived for. And now he takes the imagery of food and goes to harvest. Verse 35 says this, 35 through 38. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you. All right, this is the passage, ready? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Can we say that together? Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may, what does it say? Rejoice together. I love that. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. Jesus starts out by saying, not only does he have a food deeper and better than anything they got at Sychar, but he's also saying the harvest has come. Oh man, this is us. Not only in appearance, eyes on appearance, eyes on appetite, but we tend to push this thing off. Do we not? Somewhere, some, somehow, we think that, all right, all right, God, I know you're calling me to make this life, the short, fragile life you've given me, matter for an eternity. Matter. Friends, let me just, let me just slow down, okay? Full stop. Full stop. Ready? 
eternity. Remember? Remember? Forever. Remember this? Like, what God has done in you and then what God can do through you is forever, unending, throughout all eternity. That's astounding. That should really not only make our minds wonder and marvel at what God has done, but it also should help us lift our eyes to see what God is doing. How do I need to realign my priorities? How do I need to let my excuses finally and forever die? Listen, friends, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Jesus is saying the harvest isn't next week when you get the promotion. The harvest isn't next month when the renovation's done. The harvest isn't next year after you get all your ducks in a row. The harvest is now. Like literally. Like maybe even a conversation you have in the fellowship hall. Maybe even when you're driving, you go to delicious orchards, because I know a lot of you do. Right there at the apple cinnamon donut stand. God can make someone new. You can rejoice over the glory of apple cinnamon donuts and share the good news of Christ. We just need to see it. His light, like a laser, shines into our darkness to help us remember why we're here not only individually, but why we're here corporately as a church. Do we forget this? We do. We think the church is here to entertain us, to take care of all of our needs, to help us find a nice, religious, comfortable club that we could be a part of. Oh, mercy. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. Jesus says the harvest is now. What if, friends? What if? God forbid. What if? Today is the day. Today is the day. You cross over. Today is the day. Some unthinkable, unplanned accident happens. Boom. It's over. The Bible doesn't guarantee you 100 years of happy, healthy, comfortable living. It does not. It says there is a heaven, and this is not it. All of a sudden, boom. It's over. And there, you stand before the glory and the holiness of God. How have we invested in eternity? We do understand this, right? Tomorrow could be the day. Tonight could be the night. When we think about forever, it shapes the present. Jesus says, lift up your eyes. See how these Samaritans are coming to faith. There's people all around you. You don't necessarily need to go on a mission trip, although we encourage you to. You don't need to sell everything you own and go live in an African tribe, although you should pray about it. See the mission around you. See the people around you. As someone once said, before missions is going somewhere, it's following someone. When we are following Jesus, he will lead us into his mission. That will happen. The conversation continues. After Jesus explains that when we see someone come to Christ, you're just um, experiencing the benefit of other people's labors and the Lord's work. Salvation is a work of the Lord, right? He just gives us front row seats when he saves somebody. Verse 39 says this, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
Now, this is powerful. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the whole world. Astounding! This is coming from the lips of Samaritans before it comes from the lips of the disciples. Isn't this how our God works? Did you know by the year 2030, many, many sociologists and missiologists, meaning people that study mission, say there will be more Bible-believing Christians in China than there will be in America. Friends, God is pursuing the harvest, with or without you. And perhaps if we're joyless in our faith, joyless in our worship, joyless in our Bible study, joyless in our marriage, joyless in our job, perhaps it's because we forgot that when we join in mission with Jesus, we rejoice with the Father together. That when we partake of his food, that food is meant for a purpose, to share it with others. That we are called as a church, not just to have a missions committee that does the missions work, Not just to have one or two people, very zealous people, do the work of missions. No, missions is not what we do. Missions is what we are, friends. So, who's the Samaritan woman in your life? Like, who's the one that you're like, oh gosh, their life has been a train wreck. Absolute disaster. And I'm pretty sure they're not interested in Jesus. Start praying for them. Reach out to them. Let Jesus surprise you. Not only that, but we should remember the shocking, shocking turn of events in this passage. Friends, I have to say this with all humility, and I'm going to say this with as much compassion as I can muster. This is the truth. This Samaritan woman, while the disciples were focusing on appearances and appetites, this Samaritan woman was doing what the disciples should have been doing. This Samaritan woman does more after one conversation with Jesus, let's be honest, than many Christians do after sitting in church services for days, weeks, months, years, even decades. Fruit, life change, eternities being altered. So, how do we get back? We not only remember our mission, but we remember the one who gave us the mission. Jesus said, This is my work to accomplish why the Father has sent me and why did God send Jesus? To save us. When did he finish that work? On a cross where he died so that we could live. What held Jesus Christ to the cross was obedience to the Father and love for you as he said three of the most powerful words in all of scripture. It is finished. The work of atoning, of sacrifice, of reconciliation has been done. Let the whole world know. Let it fill you with joy and freedom. Let it fill you with wonder and awe. So much so that you're the Samaritan woman and you're like, I don't care if you're going to judge me. I don't care what you're going to think about me. I don't care about appearances or appetites. I'm throwing the water jar behind because he's real. He's alive. And he's the savior of the world. 
I'll, I'll conclude with this story. I heard of a young man who was getting a job at a local movie theater. And the job that he had wasn't at the popcorn stand or at the ticket cashier. His job was an usher. You understand what ushers do? Ushers help people find their seats. The manager looked at this young man and said, okay, sir, what if there's a fire? The usher thought about it for half a second, and he said, oh, if there's a fire, you don't have to worry about me. I'm really fast. I'll get out of here, no problem. (sighs) He didn't understand his job. He didn't understand his purpose. To be an usher means if there's a fire, you take as many people with you as you possibly can. The reality is there is a heaven. The reality is also there is a hell. The reality is there is one Savior, Jesus Christ. Have we forgotten our purpose? Have we forgotten our role? In the same way this usher thought it was just about me and getting me to safety, how is Christ Jesus reminding you as an ambassador of Christ, as a follower of Christ, as a son and daughter of our loving Father, that we're to take as many people into the arms of Christ as we possibly can. Amen? Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Father God, it won't be just compassion for the lost that leads us to truly change our lives. It'll be encountering Christ. It won't just be a sermon or a message. It won't be any kind of nice presentation. It won't be even me. With tears in my eyes, with as much passion as I can muster in my lungs and in my heart, no, it's Holy Spirit something that you have to do to help us stop pushing off the mission. To help us remember with laser focus why we're here. To help us to remember and to realign our time, our talents, our treasure to your mission. It's the mission that you're on right now. And you could even be reaching someone's heart even now, Lord. So if that's you this morning, perhaps you're new to Bible teaching, new to a Christian church that believes that Jesus really is alive, then I encourage you to think upon what you've just heard, to open your heart and believe in a bigger Jesus. The one that can and does forgive any and all sin. The one that can and does give purpose to your life. The invitation is to believe and repent. Return back to God. Not only for the unbeliever. Not only for the prodigals and the skeptics. (laughs) But for us, God. For us that get so comfortable. Just sitting in the chair. Going through the motions. We need to believe. And we need to repent. Pray this prayer with me. If the Lord so leads you, just say it to him. Heavenly Father, remind me of your love. I want to encounter Jesus. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for getting distracted. Fill me with your spirit, God, I pray. 
grant me the grace to follow Jesus. It's in your good name, the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends,